welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Cooley and Silicon Valley Bank. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooleygo.com. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. David Fauchier is the founder of Cambrial Capital. Cambrial is an investment firm based in London deploying a thesis-driven fund-to-fund strategy focused on the digital asset space. David. Yes. Thank you for doing this. Such a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. We were just talking about a meeting many years ago. Was that maybe seven years ago? Something like that. Maybe seven, eight years ago at Betaworks via Seedcamp. And you've come a long way. It's been a a while. (laughs) Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your background leading up to Cambrial? Yeah, of course. So I, yeah, it's been a real mix. Um, I did a history degree um, at university, which kind of was an excuse to to study anything you wanted. Um, Did a lot of economic history there, um, especially Chinese. Got really into kind of monetary policy through that. And then started reading a lot of the kind of value investing literature. And at the same time, I was setting up a clothing business kind of by accident uh, while at uni. Ended up doing really well, um, kind of through no fault of our own. And so I thought this kind of like building a business idea was great. And then the whole fashion side of things was just horrible. And so that kind of led me into tech. I sort of Mm. left university and didn't really know what to do. And I'd done an internship at Seedcamp, which is how we met. Right. And sort of fell into the tech world in in 2011, 12, uh, which was a wonderful time to be doing it in London. Everything was really just kind of picking up. Yep. And basically held um, a bunch of fintech product and data roles um, coming out of university. And somebody sent me the, the Bitcoin white paper in 2012. And so I read this thing. And for me, it's genuinely the, the most elegant idea I'd ever come across. Hmm. And it was this wonderful sort of coming together of tech and product and, and data structures and then kind of investment and monetary policy and all of these things on the other side. And kind of took a look at it and, and thought, you know, this is going to be a 20, 30 year cycle, like m- much like what we saw with the internet. And there's, you know, I had a great job at the time and, you know, did a lot of research, um, a lot of reading, uh, did some investing, but then never actually took the plunge kind of full time. And I was sort of waiting for something to happen. And then I think Ethereum basically comes out and you abstract a, a lot of the, the complexity away. And so in 2017, um, we see this kind of explosion, not just in price, but the ability to build stuff in this mm-hmm. ecosystem. And so I started thinking about, about what to do uh, in crypto full-time as kind of a next move into this space. Um, 
and and sort of through random long random series of of coincidences starting in in summer 2017 basically found myself around the end of the year uh really seriously thinking about um a fund of funds in crypto and and i had some money from from crypto investments previously and i was just thinking about what is the best way for us to allocate this right now um how do you do that and who's us at the time well me just you yeah, yeah. and yeah. and if we were going to team up and actually raise capital outside capital yeah how should that capital best be managed and so the fund of funds idea really started because i have a family background in in fund of funds and so i through basically again coincidences managed to meet with a bunch of very interesting hedge funds of the previous like seven or eight years and i was meeting with these crypto funds and there seemed to be this really big delta in terms of of competency sophistication of the strategy professionalism and the the kind of initial thesis was that at some point these crypto funds are going to look like some of the best hedge funds in the world and there's a delta right now and they're going to converge and would i rather try and manage my own money or give money to people like this and i know that extremely smart people like this exist who are working obsessively on one particular strategy and are the best in the world at that and the idea was always do you want to compete with that knowing the competition or knowing this competition mm. that is going to come or do you want to just basically give them your money and so i spent about 3 months so this is from november through january of last year talking to as many funds as i could so sort of looking and seeing if there was enough raw material in this space to actually do a fund of fund strategy um and, and what then, does that mean just like enough funds enough different yeah, strategies enough, exactly so yeah. you know if you're a fund of funds the way you got to think about it is i can invest in 10 funds sure but if all of those 10 funds have the same portfolios then there is no diversification there yeah um, so are there is there enough kind of uh operational diversification in terms of how they you know even at the time it was all self custody no one really had best practices around how to do it and so you're thinking you know are they at least employing different ways of doing this or are they all using the same kind of protocols and then in terms of the portfolios they're building how they're positioning is this different are there people thinking about this space in different ways and i think what you can look at from kind of the hedge fund world is you can go and meet like five managers in new york in a day and one guy is going to be long the us dollar and short tech or whatever and the next guy is the opposite and somehow at the end of the year both guys make money and so that the kind of core insight there is that there is more than one way to skin a cat it's really about how people are putting together a series of asymmetric bets and stacking them on top of each other and there are different ways to do that and so you can have people with fundamentally different views of the market who are all making money in their own very different idiosyncratic ways and so the that first 3 month exercise was about seeing whether the seedlings of this kind of sophistication were there so so what is cambrial so how do you describe cambrial we're an investment firm that's building a fund of funds specifically focused on specifically focused on digital assets yeah on digital assets and and does that include Now there's a number of structures that crypto funds yeah. are using. There's venture firm structures, there's yes. hedge fund structures, there's other structures, mining stuff, structures. Yeah. What does that mean that Cambrio can invest in all of those things and will invest in all those things? So Cambrio will invest globally and yep. will invest in anything that is a fund that is in one way or another making money by investing or buying and selling digital assets. and um, within that you have a bunch of different structures and people are sort of taking traditional structures like venture or quarterly liquidity kind of hedge fund type structures and they're kind of 
editing them and, and kind of changing them a little bit because the liquidity profile of crypto is just different to both venture and public equities. And so there are some people that say, well, the best way to do this is to take a 10-year venture-style uh, lockup. And then we're going to make these bets, but the bets are going to be liquid in like two, three, four years. And then we're going to take the capital and recycle it. And by the way, we'll do some liquid investments and some illiquid, and some of those will be convertibles like SAFTs, and the other ones will be equity, like proper kind of venture style investment. And that will that includes like Andreessen's new fund, exactly, and so like placeholder, placeholder, yeah, uh, Libertus Fabric in in yeah. the UK, yeah. So all of these like these are ten year VC type structures with VC guys in them, uh, pursuing a VC strategy focused on blockchain. Yep. Um, then you have kind of these, what we call liquid venture funds and liquid VC is kind of, it's again, it's a VC type team making VC type investments in early stage tech, but they're doing it out of a quarterly liquidity structure. And that from one angle looks a lot like VC in terms of how they pick investments, what the return profile is going to look like. And then from the other side, you look at this from a risk management perspective and it looks a little bit like a micro cap kind of long short fund. And that's a little bit terrifying. And so you have these kind of funds, what people think of as crypto funds, which is really this one kind of bucket of funds for us, which is like liquid venture, what we call. And this is like the polychains and the meta stables right. and the multicoins. Right. And on the one hand, yes, they can 20x in a year, which is unheard of. And on the other, you have some serious liquidity issues that you need to spend a lot of time thinking about. And so we kind of stay up at night. What keeps us up at night is really thinking about that bucket of funds. Hmm. And then you kind of keep moving along the spectrum and you get these different other strategies that are really coming out. We can chat about those if, if you want. So you said that one of the reasons that you initially got interested in building a crypto fund of funds was because there's all these different strategies yeah. and so spreading risk across all those strategies. Um, and I want to talk more about each of them. But uh, the flip side of that is that a fund of fund structure mm -hmm. Um, comes with fees. Yes. Right. And so my understanding is that each of the crypto funds or venture firms mm -hmm. um, charge at least two and 20, 2% 2 mm -hmm. management fee, 20% mm -hmm. carry. Many of them charge more, is my understanding. Many of them charge you know, to. three and 30. Maybe that's changed. Yeah. It's changing. That's changed. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, this is from the perspective of your LPs. Yeah, yeah. You charge an additional management fee yes. and carry on top of what are potentially already potentially high fees. Um, even though you're spreading that risk across mm -hmm. all these strategies, does the does the benefit go away with all the yeah. when you ask, start adding you up net all the, whole the thing fees? Out. Yeah, How should do you, you think just about that? the Bitcoin right directly? Um, yeah, so a, typically a fund of funds is going to charge you one in ten above what the underlying funds right. are charging, which is So in theory, for a very high fees fund that charges 3 and 30, yes. even maybe that's starting to change. Yeah. In theory, net to your LPs, there could be situations in which they're paying close to 4 and 40. 4% management fee and 40% carry. Yes, but we would be incredibly unlikely to actually invest in a 3 and 30 fund. Okay. Um, so like we do take this into account. Yeah. Um, like a very significant percentage of my net worth is in this fund. I'm buying the same share class as LPs. I'm paying the same fees. Yep. Um, these things we take into account, of course. Um, I think the first thing to say is that as you get a little bit larger 
and you build good relationships with funds and they understand that you're here to stay for the long term and that you have the potential to incrementally add capital from a single LP yourself every month as you take in money, that they can build a long-term relationship and then you can start talking about potentially seeding funds, getting ratchets, reducing those fees. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is really like two and 20 is your starting point. Mm-hmm. And then maybe those can go down. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, as a fund of funds, you are paying fees on fees and this is going to be more expensive than going direct. But the way I would think about it is that what you are really doing as a family office or institution is you are paying someone one in 10 to go out and do this diligence for you. And I would posit that in such a sophisticated, fast-moving, opaque, technical asset class, I've never met an institutional allocator that can actually go and do the work of understanding the operational risks that a fund is taking, of understanding the technical diligence that's going into this, that is plugged in enough in the ecosystem that they can actually go and diligence a VC fund by calling up the 10 projects that they're investing in and saying, hey, Matt, you know, you took money from fund X, you know, they say they add value and that they get deal flow that no one else gets. How many VCs did you show this deal to? Yeah. 50. Okay, so that's out the window. Right. And since they wrote you a check nine months ago, have they ever called you? No. Okay, so is this VC fund really adding value? Is this founder going to refer other great companies to them? Probably not. Doing this kind of like really on the ground, close to the metal diligence, between that and actually sitting down with a fund that's, you know, the investment thesis is in kind of novel consensus mechanisms. And so you actually sit down with them and have a discussion for two hours around why they invested in Thunder and not Chia. You can't do that as a traditional kind of family office that right. doesn't really understand crypto, but wants to to get the allocation. And so what you're doing there is paying one in 10. And if you think of it, we're a four-person team working on this full-time. You can go and hire I think your four-person team and go do that, but probably the costs, you'd need to be writing really big checks before it would be cheaper for you to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, Many, many LPs or fund of funds that we chat with, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the themes in traditional venture today is many of them are doing more direct investing in companies outside of their, you know, or or alongside their managers. Um, And one effect that has is essentially lowering the net fees yes. for their LPs. Will you guys do direct investing where where appropriate out of the fund? Yeah, so we, for the foreseeable future- And direct not, investing, just to be clear, I mean like investing directly into underlying assets or, or projects. Yeah. So I think the good example of that would be a an underlying fund that we're invested with does an SPV for a particular deal and we get to participate in that directly. Mm-hmm. Um, for the foreseeable future, we are not going to do that purely for questions of focus. Um, What we look for in in our managers is we're really looking for a four-person team that does one thing and does it obsessively and very well. Well World-class kind of fun doing one single thing. And that's what we're trying to do for for our LPs. It's really like, this is the one thing that we do. And so to the extent that there is deal flow, and there will be, we're just going to pass that directly to the LPs. We'll do a light bit of diligence on it and say, look, we think this may or may not be interesting. Your LPs? Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll basically pass deal flow onto our LPs directly and let them do it. But I don't really believe philosophically in this model of saying we both do fund-to-funds investing and direct investing. Mm. Because the the underlying philosophy of a fund-to-funds is to say, I'm going to go out and find that guy that can invest better than me, mm. that can diligence deals better than me, build a portfolio better than me, and I'm going to give him my capital to manage. Yep. And so if you go round... 
And, you know, you put in a million dollar ticket into the fund itself, and then you're writing like 200K checks into a couple deals that they do. You basically mess up that portfolio construction that he's done. And so for us, it's it's really a, a question of focus and kind of philosophy as to why we don't. So let's talk about some of the different strategies across the crypto mm-hmm. landscape. We talked about a couple of the different structures between, yep. you know, long-term VC firm structure and hedge quarterly liquidity yep. hedge fund structure. I get the sense that a lot, many, the the large majority of these funds are investing in the same assets. Like if you look at the like yeah. just you look at the blogs, for example, across the ecosystem and they're blogging about the same projects and the same assets. And so I'm just curious. I, I think you obviously know way better than we do. What are some of the strategies that feel truly fundamentally differentiated and defensible? Yeah, this is really fun. Um, so I think there's a huge disconnect between firstly what you kind of read in terms of public information from these funds and then when you actually sit down with them and look at the portfolio construction. There's a big difference there. And also all of the rumors that you hear about you know, Fund X doing X or Y or having built a position over here, then you actually sit down with them and it turns out to not be true or, or to have been mm. very much skewed. Mm. Um, so I think there's a big delta between kind of the public and private information there. Um, the second is people think of crypto funds as this very narrow bucket of highly directional, high beta funds that are just like investing in crypto and you know buying the same top 20 assets and then they get into some like special SAF deals and that goes liquid six months later and right. 10Xs and this is how they're making money. Right. And that is a bucket of funds, but for us, it's basically like one of four buckets. And I think that kind of four bucket structure is going to expand as time goes on. Again, you look at the traditional hedge fund world, there's dozens of different types right. of strategies. And so the really interesting stuff for me at the moment that, that we're diving pretty deeply on is all of these kind of market neutral funds. Funds that are generating returns that are not correlated to the crypto market cap or the price of Bitcoin. Mm. And so what that looks like is a collection of funds that are doing different things in this space where they're generating pretty attractive risk-adjusted returns with a very high sharp ratio, um, where they're adding like 10, 20 basis points a day, and they have very tightly controlled drawdowns. And so these look like very steady returns that are not as sexy as the like 20x crypto fund, but are still very attractive compared to any other fund in different asset classes. And those mentions that you, those metrics that you mentioned are are somewhat typical metrics for the hedge fund industry, correct? Yeah. So your your Sharp or or Sortina ratio, pretty similar. What they're looking at is, you know, for each unit of volatility, what um, Mm. criminal um, return are you getting, basically? And so a high sharp ratio would basically be, I have a low volatility fund that still returns a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of funds that we're looking at there are broadly kind of what you would call quant, but then quant really breaks down into, you know, we have the traditional uh, price arbitrage. So the idea yep. of, you know, buying and selling Bitcoin on different exchanges at different prices and netting the spread, then statistical arbitrage momentum strategies where really what you're doing is you're taking data sets off exchanges you're normalizing that data getting a static distribution and then basically lining all of those distributions up into a series and then applying pretty much a machine learning model to that and saying we are going to try and predict the price in one minute 10 minutes uh one hour so these very short movements 
And what you're doing there really is, is you are looking for inefficiencies in the market. And crypto is this wonderful kind of generational opportunity right now in the sense that we have a bona fide information asymmetry in a public market. And that does not happen traditionally. We've had this like once every 20 years, commodities, hedge funds, things like this. And what we have today is for a bunch of different, pretty structural reasons. You know, the first is that this is a tiny asset class. $200 billion market cap means no serious money managers are going to move in, which means the sophistication of the average strategy is very low. Mm-hmm. You have an asset class that's super complex and fast moving. Like, this is deep tech stuff. It's like the combination of like distributed systems, of cryptography. Um, it's like very difficult. There's a huge time commitment for people to get into the space and start trading it. Then it's like trading 24-7 globally across a patchwork of different regulatory environments. And then it's got this crazy market narrative around it where, you know, it's drug money and Ponzi schemes and rat poison from, you know, Jamie Dimons and Warren Buffetts of the world um, saying this stuff. And so there's a huge kind of credibility issue with it and career risk, basically. And so for us, the narrative, especially over the last kind of nine months, has really dislocated between what we're seeing happen on the ground in terms of engineering teams and products being built and the market narrative, which is basically that crypto has collapsed. And so for all of these reasons, you have massive amounts of inefficiencies in the market. And these kind of market neutral funds, what they're doing is they are generally spinning out of traditional quant funds like Two Sigma and and places like this. And they're looking at this and saying, look, we can apply the same model that we were in a very efficient equities market to the crypto market and generate very attractive risk-adjusted returns here. And it's no more difficult than that. It's just that it's new, that no one wants to touch it, that it's too small for people to really pay attention to. But so if you're a small fund that really knows what they're doing, you can do some very interesting things here. And the problem for these funds is that they're small because on the one hand, the crypto guys look at it and say, you know, for example, a 40% uh, return annualized, very stable, that's boring. Like, give me the juicy, sexy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else looks at this and says, I'm sorry, you're a crypto fund. There's no way we can even let you through the door. Mm. And so they are kind of stuck in the middle of, you know, not having enough returns or juicy enough returns for kind of like crypto cowboys to like throw some money at it. Mm. But then you can't raise from traditional allocators, especially in Europe for something like this, because they have no idea what's going on. And generalized mining is just a really good example of that. Yeah. What is generalized mining? So you, we're you know, partial. You tell me. <laughs> um, the way we think about it really is because I think is that would you consider that? Would you consider some of the you know whether you call it generalized mining yeah. or mining 2.0, yeah. which is I mostly mining focused on the newer proof of stake networks? Yes. Would you would you consider that a differentiated like a strategy bucket. that could fit yeah. into a new bucket? So we we've been diving pretty deeply on this for like three months now. Um, many questions remain, but maybe to start with the definition, the way we think about generalized mining is somebody providing work to networks, which is you know with Bitcoin was called mining. Mm-hmm. But what you're really doing is providing work to a network in exchange for fees. Mm-hmm. And are there ways in which you can do that where you will generate attractive kind of returns on capital for the longer time where you can build a moat around that? And so we've had, you know, if you think of a a kind of continuum between different types of consensus mechanisms, and on the far left, you have things like Bitcoin and pure kind of proof of work stuff. 
And there, you know, everyone is buying the same chips. And chip production, because of how that industry works, is extremely centralized. So there's going to be one, two, three chip producers. You buy the chips from them, you plug in electricity, and you mine. And so you're going to generate returns. And I think the winners there are really going to be basically infrastructure companies. You know, the ultimate goal there is to go and find an energy company that will pay you to consume excess electricity for them. And that's, I think, basically how you're going to win in this space. And it looks like an energy and infrastructure game. For traditional mining. For traditional kind of yeah. proof-of-work mining. Yeah. And then you have these new consensus mechanisms that are coming out. Uh, proof-of-stake, delegated proof-of-stake, and then just moving outwards on that curve towards stuff like kind of layer two, uh, lightning networks, running nodes, providing work to networks that is not just hashing power. And there suddenly the quality of your algorithms matter. The quality of your software matters. And what it starts to look like five years from now, I think, is kind of a Rentec, Renaissance Technologies, which is you know a premier quant fund. What you have is a hundred guys in a room basically optimizing algorithms to you know provide work to networks more efficiently to generate higher returns. And at the moment, you know, there are some wonderful funds doing this. Uh, I think, you know, CoinFund, who are great friends with you guys. Um, you guys have, have done a bunch of stuff on LivePeer that you've published. You can generate, I think, in your post, you were talking about kind of 2% a day. Um, it's very attractive returns, especially in the beginning stages of a network. And I think we're going to see generalized mining over the long term break out into two different types of strategies when you think about it from the returns profile. The first is going to be that I think the VC fund in crypto is going to look like a generalized mining firm, which is to say that the value add above the capital that you're providing is not hiring, recruiting, helping with growth and biz dev, like an Andreessen Horowitz uh, first round capital type model. It's going to be that I think long term emerging projects are going to have to fight for hashing power. Yep. And you're going to have to, you know, these protocols are basically marketplaces. Um, and in a marketplace, you have network effects. And if you want to bootstrap that, you need to probably go after the supply side first and somehow get the supply side up and running for the demand side to come in. And so what we'll see, I think, is VC firms, and this is happening, yeah. but it's going to happen, I think, more and more and then become the, the norm, which is we're going to come in, we're going to give you, you know, a check, your seed check, and then we're going to provide a bunch of, of basically hashing power of mining to your network on day one of launch so that it's actually functioning. And we're going to bootstrap the supply side of that marketplace. Um, and that will be the differentiator. That will be why a world-class project takes money from one VC firm over the other. And what that will look like for the VC firm is that they will you know, buy tokens at a particular price, and then they will earn tokens through mining at a lower price and reduce basically the, the investment cost for a particular position that they've yep. built up. The other side of things, I think, is going to be firms that are able to provide work to networks and basically hedge out the exposure risk to that underlying token. Hmm. So that'll look like these very stable, very liquid type returns where it's you know the Rentec model of a bunch of guys in a room uh, building algorithms, hedging out the exposure and just generating like incremental uh, P&L every single day. So you, you're clearly excited about kind of like market neutral risk quant strategy. I'm excited because it's something that people don't think about. Right. They think of crypto funds and they right. think of like a fund that 20X last year and blew up this year. Right. So, so, so that's my question is, is do you think 
particularly for the hedge funds, Mm -hmm. crypto hedge funds, do you think a simple long-only buy some of the assets strategy works? Like in venture, I think, you know, I mean, venture obviously is long-only. You're only buying assets and you're buying them very long-term. Do you think long own that same yeah, model but, yeah, yeah. but in a hedge question. fund structure works in the crypto market i think it's really difficult and the reasons why people are paying two and twenty for that are that they don't want to take the exposure risk themselves and that they have absolutely no idea about how you would go around picking investments and then managing that portfolio i think over time that gets obbed away this is this type of information and and work is going to get is going to be the first to get commoditized. I think mm. there's only so many. If you're managing relatively large amounts of capital, there's only so many assets that you can buy. Yep. You know, and if you can reduce the work down to you know top twenty, top fifty assets, it's very difficult for a fund to say we're going to charge you two and twenty for the long term. And by the way, you know, we say we're a hedge fund, but actually we're just long only, and maybe we aggressively use cash. But this is kind of long only two and twenty. That more looks like you know something like a mutual fund that should right. be charging one percent no performance. Right. So it's very, I think, very difficult. And I think the v- the really interesting thing we're going to see now is that as of about three months ago, it's become possible for a fund to go and get significant borrow at an attractive rate for the top ten crypto assets to short. Hmm. So suddenly now, basically as of summer, you can go out and actually short these these things. And so if you can do that, then suddenly a bunch of funds that have said that they're a crypto hedge fund, which kind of implies that they're hedging positions, but haven't, what they've basically done is they've been long only and then they've gone to cash when yep. they thought the market was going down, yep. who have these theses around, you know, Kyle at Multicoin has been very public about, you know, being short um, Litecoin. He's never been able to really express that thesis in the portfolio because you couldn't get meaningful borrow like a year ago on Litecoin at a rate of like 10%. And so yep. there was nothing you could do about it. Yep. So today I think we're in a position, and for us it's going to be very interesting to look at the next six months to see you know these funds that are calling themselves hedge funds that say they can hedge out my exposure, that are going to be able to minimize drawdowns in bear markets and capture all of the upside in, in the bull markets. Are they actually able to do this? Can you have a, you know, 150 gross and 20 net type exposure, which is to say like half your portfolio roughly is long, the other half is short, and you have very little net exposure to the market movements. Right, right. And so what you're doing there is you're betting on dispersion between two assets. So the the equities world example of that is I'm, I think that Coke is a great company and Pepsi is a crappy company, and they're both valued at the same same price right now. And so I'm going to go long Coke and short Pepsi. And what I'm doing is I'm not betting on where the market is going to go, whether or not there's going to be a crash. Yeah. I'm betting on the fact that over the long term, Coke is going to outperform Pepsi and I'll make money on the dispersion. That translated into crypto is only now possible. And I think the next six months is where we'll see funds actually prove out that they're able to do it. Hmm. So, How do you think about your own portfolio construction at Cambridge? For us? Yeah. So, As in, are you going to invest in... You know, forty managers yeah. or three or one in each of the buckets that you described. How do you yeah. think about that? So we, I, I would describe us as kind of a long-term buy and hold strategy, but for funds. So what we always tell managers is, is we're going to be very slow on the way in, 
um, we're really going to do our diligence. We're going to spend a lot of time with you. We need to get comfortable with you because you do not have a 10-year track record in this space. So a lot of the assessment is going to be qualitative. We need to run through your operations, your custody. There's a bunch of ODD work that we need to do. But once we do, we're really looking to invest with managers who have a very long kind of period. Ideally, you know, they're here to be managing capital for the next 20 years. And so we're looking to find managers that we can incrementally allocate capital to for a long time to come. And as long as performance continues to do well, to really stick with them. And then in terms of the portfolio, I think the steady state is going to be between 10 to 20 funds. In terms of portfolio construction, it's very much bottoms up. What we're looking to do is to roughly spread out between these kind of directional funds that um, are highly volatile, but are exposed to this kind of crypto theme. And on the other side, these market neutral funds. And what we'll be trying to do is basically generate a, an adequate rate of return in bear markets, a good rate of return in, in stable kind of sideways markets, and to be capturing a lot of the upside in, in bull markets. Yep. And then what, you know, what we'll end up doing, of course, is splitting out those two strategies so that people can pick and choose what they want. How do you think about where we are in the blockchain cycle and ecosystem today i know yeah. you i know you kind of mentioned the public narrative is that mm -hmm. uh the last year has been a disaster yep. and bitcoin prices are down by 70 percent and um and you know uh blockchain is dead yeah, yeah, yeah um but i think you know we, we both believe that at least in the private markets there's a lot of interesting things happening i'm just curious to understand where you think we are in the I would say long term cycle of blockchain, but also maybe like short term, short -term. Bear, bear bull market cycle. Yeah, I think there's kind of two ways to answer this question. The first is if we look at market cycles um, anywhere over history, what we you can kind of imagine is sort of a pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other. And what happens is you are in a, a an extremely sort of bullish extreme, like uh, November of last year. And then that starts to swing through something that becomes more normal. And I think in March, April, May, a lot of managers, a lot of people in the space were sort of relieved because the mm -hmm. hype was kind of gone and everything seemed to be normalizing. But of course, the pendulum continued to swing. And I think we're now starting to get to a point where people are getting irrationally extreme in the other direction. As a negative. Very negative. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, I think we're not at the end of that swing yet. I think what'll happen is, is, and what we see in traditional markets, is that that pendulum is going to continue to swing all the way to the other side. And if you think of a, a pendulum in physics, like there is a point at the extreme of the swing where it stops. And for that moment in time, it seems like the pendulum is just going to sit there forever at that extreme. And I think we're going to get that feeling in crypto that it's really, you know, in November, December, this was the new thing. This was going to change the world. It was here to stay. And I think the extreme of the, the, the swing that we're in, in the middle of now is going to be that people will truly, deeply, firmly believe that crypto is dead. And it will seem like it will be irrevocably so. And that's, I think, when we'll have the swing the other way. And so I'm, I'm no great market timer uh, uh, at all. I, I think it's, it's a very rare skill, um, if at all. But I think that we still have some way to go in terms of the narrative and the pessimism. And I think that when people describe themselves as contrarian or skeptical, um, especially on the skeptical side, I think you are right to be skeptical in November, December around crypto and all of these promises. But at the same time, skeptical does not mean pessimistic. 
Skeptical means looking and seeing that everyone is agreeing on one thing and saying, is it really so? Mm. And are assets priced accordingly? Mm. And so I think if we are able to be skeptical and if our managers are able to be skeptical at the end of this kind of swing, they'll be looking at something that everybody is saying is completely dead and they'll be looking at the prices and they say, they'll be skeptical about that narrative on the bearish side. And I think that will be an extremely interesting time for them to be investing. What do you think drives or marks that extreme of uh, pessimism? Like what, what, what do you imagine will be the marker? Like one, one thing I was thinking recently was um, a lot of these uh, crypto funds mm -hmm. got raised at the top of the market, yep. which is almost a year ago. And mm -hmm. my understanding is a lot of them have essentially one-year lockups. Yep. Yep. And after a year, their LPs can come knocking and actually take their money out, unlike venture firms. Yep. So I was thinking maybe that would be and so if enough people ask to redeem their money, yep. those funds have to sell their assets. And all of a sudden you have, you know, not even folks that want to be sellers into the market, mm -hmm. but basically forced sellers. And maybe that's the final nail in the coffin that kind of where we see the bottom. Like, so, are there other, are there other drivers that you think will potentially mark the, that, that, you know, crypto is dead yes. bottom? So... I think the the. Do you think that will happen? By the way, do you think a lot of these yeah these funds in traditional markets this would be true? I think in crypto markets it's not because it's a retail and service provider driven market. If you add up all of the top crypto funds, if you take out the venture funds with a ten year lock, so there's no forced selling. Yep. And you just look at the hedge funds, you've got what one maximum $2 billion worth of capital that is available to sort of be forced sold because LPs are selling. And then you take that and you compare it to the miners, the projects, and all of the other sort of service providers and ecosystem players that they themselves have had forced selling forever. If you're an exchange, you hired a ton of you know customer service people mm. and you expanded stuff. If you're a project, you're spending on marketing, you're hiring, mm. your offices, all of this stuff is paid for in USD. If right. you're a miner, you're buying chips in US dollars or some fiat currency. You're paying for electricity in USD. We have sustained forced selling in crypto mm. every single month. Mm, and the amount of forced selling you could have in funds right. is tiny compared to that. Mm. What I think might happen is that the kind of forced selling, poor performance, we're going to have lawsuits and, and just screw ups and funds blowing up. And that's going to drive a market narrative, I think. And I think to the extent that, that what you're saying is going to play out, it'll be more because it'll drive the narrative hmm. than actually it'll be you know, mass force selling right. an asset. Where you really have to differentiate at that point is that you have to look on the one hand at these sort of directional funds that are making these long-term bets that are you know, susceptible to basically moves in the crypto market and then a bunch of funds that are you know, basically going home at the end of the day with a you know, a portfolio that's 100% cash, that are extremely nimble, right. that are moving into positions for a minute or seven. Right. Um, and so these don't really care whether the market is is going up or down or sideways. For some of these strategies, they're basically long volatility. So whether right. the fund is going up or down, what they're looking for is big moves. Um, so and we're now in a we'll period see. of very, very, very low volatility. We are, I mean, I think, I yeah. think as far as I can tell, like, like for example, I know 
I have a few, few, I know a few people that are just crypto day yeah. traders. Yeah. Like they're not funds. They manage their own money. They just trade crypto. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them are actually thinking about going and taking jobs for the first time in a while. <laughs> Seriously, because, yeah. because the, the markets are so much less volatile yes. than they once were for a day trader, or I would imagine even for some of these quant funds, yep. it's actually harder to make money in, in super low volatility so environments. It really so. depends on the quant fund. Like One can be basically using volatility. One can be using um, volume. Essentially, they, they, they have a positive correlation in terms of their returns to okay. volume. So if you think of market making, for example, that's, yeah. that's one. And then price R would be the other. Like you're really looking at dispersions of assets. Um, volatility is an interesting measure because it totally depends on the time frame. So you can have an asset that, you know, between, you know, T0 and T10 goes basically sideways and doesn't move. Like it stays, it starts at one, it ends at one. But in between, you know, T1, 2, 3, 4, TN, you are going up to 20, down minus 20, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can have these oscillations in between that time. And so if we look at volatility on a very short time horizon, you've still got quite a lot of it. Longer time horizon, the kind of thing that a day trader would be looking at because a human can actually respond in these kinds of times. So it's like one hour, one day type windows. Yes, volatility has come down a lot. But what happens in bear markets pretty much always is that you get assets start to correlate a lot. Dispersion goes down and they all sort of trend downwards together. Um, so it's pretty standard stuff. Hmm. Um, how do you think... Uh, traditional venture participates um if at all like how do you think folks like notation (laughs) like ourselves and you know some of the other traditional folks that are active um investors in blockchain so i think you know you guys are are pretty tight with with kind of the the crypto crowd and and you've been looking at this space for a very long time and and so maybe i'll take you guys out of it because i think you're in a pretty good position but if we think of the big kind of like, I don't want to pick on anyone, but sort of your big well-known generalist VC fund that's managing three, five, eight hundred million dollars. What's happening there? Outside of maybe some of the traditional VC firms that have like, yeah, I'm like, about like, like USV or Andreessen yeah. that have built kind of dedicated expertise yeah. around it. So some of them have built that. Are we excluding expertise. them? Yeah, so I think, well, maybe to speak kind of more broadly, what's happened is that some of them have gotten into this space early and, you know, USV and Andreessen, which has basically just been Chris Dixon over there, but the USV team really has has been pushing on this narrative um, around, you know, this really fits into their wheelhouse. It's decentralized, it's marketplaces, it's protocols, this is stuff they've always done. They've been speaking about this for years. But outside of these guys, you're, you're like typical fund. You know, I'm thinking like, Excel, super generalist fund, NEA, one of these big funds. Yeah, sure. uh, Sequoia, maybe. You know, what you have is like there's a partner or a a guy or girl there that, you know, has for one reason or another either gotten into crypto themselves or they've been told, you know, tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, can you, you know, go look at this crypto thing and, and tell us. And they find themselves in a position where they are trying to invest in a world that is very much at the edge and doesn't either doesn't know who NEA is or doesn't care. And they are going in, they need to learn, they need to network, they need to meet the teams, they need to build up a brand again from scratch. And at the same time, they need to educate upwards to their partners around what crypto is and Mm. why this random protocol over there where we have no governance, we don't Mm. get to dictate any of the terms. And 
you know, it's just a very, very different offering. Yeah. Um, so they're educating upwards at the same time as they're trying to build out their network, learn about the space because they didn't know anything about it six months before, and then find teams and get them to accept their capital. And so it's just a very difficult space where I think a lot of funds have looked at it and said, either, you know, option one, we have to participate because, you know, we need our returns to be in line with, with basically a benchmark. And so we have to get some exposure to this in case it really blows up. On the other hand, you have a bunch of people that are saying, you know, we have a $500 million fund. We can't allocate meaningfully to this space versus the amount of work that's going to be required for us to do it properly. And so I think people are getting dragged into sort of sanitized deals like Telegram and, you know, Telegram was really a kick 2.0. Yeah. You know, the kick deal happened a year and a bit ago. Yeah. And it was the first thing that a traditional VC could look at and, and invest in without getting fired. And Telegram was kind right. of a repeat of that. And I think we have some of these kind of traditional uh, companies playing in the blockchain space, you know, maybe providing data on, on uh, uh, like underlying blockchains and doing analysis um, who are just raising it some incredible valuations for a business that is, it's very unclear to me why that doesn't get commoditized over time. The reason those, why they're raising is it's, it's a right. sanitary type investment you can make. But that, that does seem like a, a, maybe, maybe how traditional venture, even in, yeah. in the traditional venture outside of maybe firms that you would consider uh, well-versed in mm -hmm. blockchain participates and that yeah. they just invest in traditional companies yeah. building products and services around blockchain. So that could include exchanges and custody and security products yeah. and uh, analytics and data, like you mentioned. So maybe, maybe that's ultimately how they participate. Yes, but... I think the 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 issue is that a lot of these businesses you're describing, I think exchanges have done super well, great, but it's very much retail driven. You look at a you know uh, wallets like hardware wallets, totally dependent those cash flows on retail adoption. People buy a hardware wallet for eighty bucks and then they never buy one again, and so what you're looking for is incremental retail investors coming into the space. It's extremely exposed to to fluctuations there. There's a lot of these businesses that for one reason or another are either um, very vulnerable and non-steady cash flows or probably going to get commoditized, I think, over the next few years. And so it's difficult to find businesses that venture companies type, that kind of venture funds like to invest in. Things with you know strong data network effects, things like this, where they can invest at a high valuation and exit at a really high valuation. It seems like you know custody is the playbook has been written. Like we know what custody is going to look like for crypto. It's going to look like Northern trust. Yeah. People are going to fidelity, fidelity, stuff like this. Yeah. It's just a really tough space to play in. Yeah. And so I think the opportunity set for a traditional venture fund is not very compelling. Right. Or at least, I mean, many would argue that the overall market to opportunity for crypto assets yeah, directly exactly. is potentially much yep. greater than yep. the, traditional companies built around the traditional yeah. or built around the crypto ecosystem. What type of LP would be interested in a crypto fund of funds? Yeah. So I think at the moment the 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 people that are interested in this are those that kind of intuitively understand that this is a very difficult space to navigate, to understand, to underwrite. There's a lot of kind of domain specific due diligence that needs to be done. 
And the kinds of people that are interested in a fund of funds are the ones that kind of intuitively understand that they're not in a position to do this themselves. Um, and so they've generally decided that they would like to get some sort of exposure to the space, that they're interested, that they'd like to learn more, to write a first ticket. Um, but they don't feel comfortable taking on those risks themselves. So we did recently see some reports that some of the very traditional folks yeah. like Yale and uh, I forget who else, but some of the really traditional Harvard, institutional Stanford. LP world yeah. is now starting to invest in these funds. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that as it relates to Gambrill's yeah. So I think you know, the, the, it's wonderful to see endowments doing this. Um, I think endowments in the kind of institutional space are generally the first to move, hmm. especially U.S. endowments. And what we've seen basically is institutional capital flow into funds where they've already invested in that manager before. And so the funds that have been able to raise from hmm. people like this really right. is, you know, Chris Dixon, who we've invested in with Andreessen Horowitz and his last two funds, is now doing a crypto fund. Let's write him a check. Um, Matt Huang from Sequoia. We know Sequoia. We've invested in Sequoia. He's now doing Paradigm. Let's write them a check. Yep. It's not a small or even large fund that they've never invested in before um, coming in and, you know, as good as they may be, sort of announcing themselves to the institutional world who didn't know about them six months ago and then Yale writing them a big check. That makes sense. I think the first step is like writing checks to VCs where we've already written that manager a check before. Yep. And it will then flow from that to the, I think, new crop of excellent managers that are out there. That are maybe more come for the come from the crypto world rather than the, yeah, exactly. the, the yeah. traditional yeah. venture world. Yep. Okay. Uh last question. I'm just curious, as you as we do think about maybe the longer term cycle, mm -hmm. three, five, ten years out, I'm just curious. I mean, obviously, I imagine you're quite bullish given the fact that you're building a crypto uh uh, uh fund of funds in the space. Where where do you imagine we are and maybe what are some of the things that you're most excited about as we look a little bit farther yeah. out, maybe three, five, seven years? So fundamentally, the way that we think about this space is that you know these cryptocurrencies aren't currencies at all, they're protocols. A protocol is basically a set of rules that allows participants or nodes to speak to each other, to communicate. And if you think of a, a, you know, a crypto network or a, a cryptographically enabled protocol, whatever you want to call these things, what they basically are is a set of rules that's enforced using a branch of maths called cryptography that allows people who do not know each other and do not trust each other to coordinate work. So if you think of Bitcoin, what you basically have is as a user of Bitcoin, I would like there to be a ledger on which I can hold a balance and I would like to be able to transfer that balance to someone else and I would like this whole ledger to be protected. All of that takes work. That work is provided by miners. And so I pay transaction fees to miners who supply the work of doing that. And you can take that kind of basic example and put it onto Ethereum, which is a nice easy one to think about. I'm paying for computation and miners are basically running the computations for me. And there's a cryptographically enabled protocol on top that basically enforces the payment of incentive fees from one party to another. And you can keep going and, and think of something like Filecoin, which allows you know me to store files on your phone 
and you to earn fees for storing my files. And again, cryptography is used to prove that you are in fact storing my files over time, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we have when we zoom out is something that looks like a generalizable mechanism for the coordination of work between humans and or machines. And this, I think, should be thought of in the lineage of like the corporation and free markets rather than anything else. What we have is a very generalizable architecture to coordinate work. And so when I zoom out and think about this on a 10-year time horizon, I'm really thinking about, is this architecture interesting? Does it allow people to do things much more cheaply? And if so, that's great. But really the interesting stuff that might change the world is the second order effects of that. So great, we can use cryptographic protocols like Dharma to reduce, you know, to increase transparency and reduce fees for issuing credit on the blockchain. What's interest, more interesting than that, though, is not the cost savings. It's not cutting out the middleman. It's saying, if I can reduce cost by 10x and increase transparency to basically you know, 100%, that allows or enables a bunch of second-order new use cases that were not possible before. And that, I think, is where we're going to see businesses being built in crypto in the long term. The really interesting ones will be stuff that's crypto-native, that wasn't possible without this. And so we're pretty bullish basically on, on this fundamental architecture type enabling different things in the world and just very excited to see what, what companies build. David, thank you for taking the time. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Was really it. Fun. And all the best with Cambrio. Cheers. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaue, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.